Happy New Year! This is Rohit Bhargava, author of Non-Obvious Megatrends, How to See What Others Miss and Predict the Future, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help us both keep up with the latest ideas in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction and save you time. This show is a labor of love that I do in my spare time. My day job is running a marketing agency where we work with manufacturers to help them grow. If that sounds like your company and you're serious about growth, check out our guide to lead generation for manufacturers on our website, salesartillery.com, or Google lead generation for manufacturers, and you'll find the guide atop the organic results. Now, the number one worry I hear from listeners is that they feel they aren't reading enough books to be more successful. So, special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Blinkist, which is an app that takes the key insights from the best nonfiction books and distills them into a format that you can read or listen to in just a few minutes on your smartphone. Several of the books featured on the Marketing Book Podcast are on Blinkist. You can sign up for free at Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast. Blinkist is spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. And if you opt for the paid version, you'll get an additional 20% off, but only if you go to Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast. I also have a link to it at MarketingBookPodcast.com. And now, on with the show. Today, we welcome back for the fifth time Rohit Bhargava to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his book, Non-Obvious Megatrends, How to See What Others Miss and Predict the Future, published by Idea Press. Rohit Bhargava is on a mission to help the world be more open-minded by teaching others how to be non-obvious thinkers. He is the founder of the Non-Obvious Company and is an entertaining, original, and non-boring keynote speaker on innovation and trust. He previously spent 15 years in leadership roles at two renowned ad agencies, Leo Burnett and Ogilvy. Rohit is the Wall Street Journal best-selling author of six books and has been invited to deliver keynote presentations in 32 countries around the world, and is now the one and only member of the Marketing Book Podcast Five Timers Club. That's not actually in his official bio, but hey, you know, just an idea. His insights have been used by the World Bank, NASA, Intel, Disney, Colgate, Coca-Cola, Under Armour, American Express, and hundreds of other organizations to win the future. Rowett is also an adjunct professor of marketing and storytelling at Georgetown University and Interesting fact, in 2019, Rohit joined a team of South African scientists and rangers and headed deep into the bush on a mission to help save rhinos. Rohit, congratulations on non-obvious megatrends and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. 
Thank you. I am so excited. This is one of the most fun ones that uh, that I have. So I've been looking forward to this. Oh, super. Well, uh, you know, at this point, folks are asking for you. Hey, are you doing another episode with Rowett? And uh, but first, I have to ask, how did it go with the rhinos? <laughs> you know, it was good, and I I think you might be giving me too much personal credit for actually saving them. Um, but uh, I was part of this uh, this team. It was actually a fascinating experience. They went and they were. Uh, rhino, what's called rhino notching. So they were just um, notching the ears so they could actually track the rhinos because they're endangered. So it was just a once in a lifetime experience. Well, I think you should get credit because was it Woody Allen who said 80% of success is showing up? You actually went there, okay? <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, at the end of the day, I mean, we uh, offered up a, a donation in order to help that work continue. So I guess that was our contribution more than kind of anything specifically with the rhino. Terrific, terrific. Well, that sounds very exciting and very fulfilling. So I should also say congratulations on uh, becoming a member of the Marketing Book Podcast Five Timers Club. Um, there, You are the currently the one and only member of that. And there will be a special induction ceremony after this interview. And in addition to the fame and fortune of being the one and only member, Rowett, you will also be receiving discount coupons at Taco Bell. <laughs> Seriously, that's excellent. I will uh, I will spread them out over my entire year so that I don't cash them in too quickly. Excellent. Well, I I signed you up for them at tacobell.com, so you're welcome. <laughs> you didn't go to the Taco Bell hotel uh, in order to do that, which No, <laughs> but I saw that mentioned in your book is uh, one of the trends. Oh, it's so interesting reading the book and I as I may have mentioned in previous years, one of the things many things that the book reminds me of is how as my kids were growing up I never noticed them growing up. And then I would look back at pictures where people who hadn't seen them for a year and say, gosh, I can't believe how much they've grown. <laughs> so yeah. I may have been marinating in some of these trends or maybe had noticed or was, was aware of some of these things, but didn't realize that they had more significance than you know probably what I passively noticed. So let me just read one excerpt from the beginning. We are inundated by content, and most of it is not good. It has become nearly impossible to separate the bullshit from the believable. Digital tools have made it easy for everyone to share ideas, even if they are one-dimensional or idiotic. Yet bullshit, no matter how well-packaged and easily distributed, remains bullshit. To face this landslide of bad content, we are increasingly relying on a combination of algorithms and one-dimensional opinions shared on social media to help us filter the noise. And we've pioneered new methods of skimming out of sheer desperation. We watch television at accelerated speed, use speed reading apps that flash a single word at a time, and turn to productivity gurus specializing in time hacking. None of these solutions work for long. The problem is that expecting to get smarter from processing content faster is a bit like entering a speed eating contest to enjoy a good meal. Eating 26 hot dogs in 60 seconds might satisfy your hunger, but you're likely to feel sick afterward. You can't understand the world better simply by reading about it as much as possible. You do so by being intentional about what you pay attention to in the first place. What if you could become a lifelong learner, curious about the world and able to see, understand, and expect things others miss? What if you could use that skill to understand patterns, spot intersections, and see around the corner to develop an observation of what the future might hold? And what if, once you put all the pieces together, you could actually learn to predict the future? You can. And the ambitious aim of this book is to teach you how to do it. I call my approach non-obvious thinking, and it can change your life. 
So, Rohit, this is the 10th anniversary of the non-obvious trend report. Take us back to how it all got started. It all got started for me in a way that was predictable, I think, because there's just so much stuff that is obvious that is printed out there. And I was reading, I remember I was reading a uh, uh, five trends that will change your business type of article, right? Uh, somewhere online. And the trends were social media, you know, or like the internet. And I was reading this thing. I was just like, and the sun will rise in the East. You heard it yeah, here first. Really? And I'm like, how is this considered to be a trend? It's just so obvious. And that was kind of what inspired the title of that first report back in 2011. It was the non-obvious trend report, kind of like a little not so subtle dig at the fact that everything else was obvious. And it was a PowerPoint? It was a PowerPoint. Yeah, it was a, actually a 15 slide PowerPoint. No, maybe 18 slides, three introductory slides, one slide per trend. And it was the non-obvious marketing and social media trend report. So it focused on just marketing and social media. So then you realized you had captured lightning in a bottle? Uh, yeah, I did because uh, I had, I think, like 200,000 people uh, look at this thing and uh, and share it. And it became my most viral, well, my second most viral uh, blog post. Um, <laughs> the first one being, I think you'll, you'll appreciate this. You might actually know, but I wrote this blog post uh, back in 2006 uh, that I called this topic that I coined a term and I called it social media optimization, SMO. And that was actually the first time that that term was used anywhere social media optimization is actually it's in wikipedia now like you could look it up it's like the first blog post that I ever mentioned this was that one and that was 2006 so that went super viral i mean that's in wikipedia but the second one was this trend report oh terrific we'll include a link to that smo article of yours in your episode show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com but you've talked a little bit about these obvious trends. Explain more about what listeners should be wary of as it relates to people who are predicting the future and trends, especially at year end and at the beginning of each year. There's a couple of things. One is if a trend clearly focuses on one specific industry. So for example, it says 2020 is going to be the year that drones really take off and, and have household applications. Scroll to the bottom of that story, and chances are it's the CEO of a company that makes drones that wrote it. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to be a little bit skeptical of things like that, which are very one-dimensional, which say this is going to be the hot product or the hot platform or everybody's going to be on this one because it is biased by someone who's profiting from that particular prediction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, well, the year 2020 is the year of uh, marketing book podcasts. I just, you know… <laughs> I've heard that as well. <laughs> Scroll to the bottom, though. <laughs> I certainly hope that's not true, because it seems like this approach is uh, one of the few. And for any of you who are thinking about starting this podcast, I was 10 episodes into it. This is going to be in the 260-ish episodes. About 10 episodes in is when I realized I was actually going to have to read each book. <laughs> So. <laughs> uh, the, so the real question, I think, is what'd you do with those first 10? I had already read them. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought maybe you skimmed the back cover. Yeah. And now uh, the imports of scotch to the United States have dropped off because I, it's really cut into my scotch drinking. But you know, it's all about trade-offs. So Rohit trends. We use that word, but I'm not sure everyone really knows what a trend is. So could you explain what a trend is 
what a trend is not and perhaps how they could know if they're looking at a fad versus a trend. A lot of what we see are fads. So my definition of a trend is that it's a curated observation of the accelerating present. Uh, curated observation, so something that you're finding and curating, much like a curator would would curate an exhibit in a museum, right? I use that word very intentionally, and I mm-hmm. write a lot about the power of curation. And accelerating present is something that's already happening, and the acceleration that you're anticipating is more people will be paying attention to it, more people will be making decisions based on it, and therefore, it matters. Okay, and a fad is... None of those things? Well, a fad a lot of times is one-dimensional. So when you see something like a product taking off or like a social media platform uh, that becomes really popular, or you see something that just doesn't have a human behavioral element to it. So it's something that's starting to take off, but there's no underlying human aspect, right? So it's just this platform, this product, this thing without a human behavior attached to it, oftentimes those things are fads. Okay, like an internet meme, maybe. Yeah. Okay, or the internet. I've been told by many business owners that it's really a fad that's going to pass. <laughs> it may be. <laughs> yeah, you should, uh, you should invest in uh, other things, I think. Right, and, or, or social media. That's, that's going away. That's something my kids do. Okay, <laughs> so tell me this. Uh, how can people become more intentionally observant? I think one of the ways that people can and are becoming more intentionally observant is removing distraction. So yes, putting your phone away, but also just the the way that we engage with all of these alerts and the idea that we need to be alerted uh, at all, right? I mean, if you think about what an alert used to be, it was like something serious was happening, right? There's like an earthquake alert, <laughs> right? Like that mm-hmm. was an alert. And now it's like, alert, someone uh, pressed like on your thing. And like, no one needs an alert for that. Like, I don't care how social media engaged you are. Like, this is not worthy of of a, of a alert popping up and disturbing you from everything else. Mm-hmm. So the first thing is remove those types of distractions. We all have the power to do that. We just choose not to. And your phone can do it. Uh, trust me, your phone has the ability to turn those things off. So remove those distractions because when you do, you'll find yourself just looking around and paying attention because you have to. I mean, we have the inability now to just like wait in line without having to check something, right? Like just try that once. Like yes. wait in line and don't pull out your phone. And just look around. Like just try it one time, you know? Yes, it's so true. And everyone should read Nir Eyal's book that you mentioned in yours, Indistractable. It is a book with a mental aftertaste because I and a good one. I keep thinking about it. And it's one of those things where I think after I read his book Hooked, I removed all the social media from my phone because I realized I didn't need that. I don't even have email on my phone now. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I started noticing things. Rowett, I didn't know I had two kids. <laughs> it's amazing the things you'll notice. I mean, it's really fascinating, right? Yeah. So it's it, it's uh, that's a great way to become uh, more observant. Are there any other big ideas that you that are I guess as dramatic as that for becoming more observant? Well, I mean, you mentioned your kids. Uh, one of the great ways to be more observant is to really pay attention to the questions that that kids ask. Mm. It's fascinating, and not just little kids either. I mean, I have a 15-year-old now, and he still asks really interesting questions. Mm -hmm. 
And one of the ways that I think we can become more observant is to try and remember what it was like when we were 15 or 12 or 10 or whatever age figuring out the world, right? And what's behind some of these questions and behind the way that they're thinking about the questions is like a really interesting thing to try and get our heads around as we are out of that age range. Yes, and as it relates to becoming more observant, that is a superpower for companies. If they're able to simply observe their customers more in whatever way they can, and I don't mean having a focus group saying, what should we do? <laughs> Just yeah. observe. What are the things they're struggling with? Where is the friction in their life? What do they hate? What do they really like? Whether it has to do with your company or not. But the most successful companies, I would say, are the most observant, or at least those that have the deepest insights into what their customers are, are thinking. Yeah, it's uh, and, and, and I think that a lot of times we tend to focus, I mean, especially in marketing, we focus so much on our customer and the way we define our customer based on their journey is they've either walked into our store or they've come to our website or they've gone through some sort of purchase funnel, right? And that's our customer because they came to us already. And that's like just one piece of it. Right? And that's the, the tail end of it too, usually. Tail end, exactly. Um, the other piece is like, what is this person doing before they actually show up? Like, what, what, how do we reach them before we ever even realize that they're looking for what we what we have what does their life look like right and the smart companies and, and you see this particularly in consumer packaged goods where they realize that their product is a piece of someone's life no one wakes up in the morning saying man i can't wait to do 18 hours of laundry right <laughs> that's not a human thing <laughs> mm -hmm. unless it's the owner of a laundromat yeah, well, you know, and, but even then, they're probably not looking forward to it, right? They're just doing it to do it because that's their work. Um, but because of that, like, we need to see what else this person is doing, what else they care about. And frankly, is your product or your service meant to help them minimize the time they have to spend on that so they have more time to do something else? Yes, yes. Is it possible to become more... Curious? Are there like curious muscles that we could strengthen? I think there there are and there must be because people tend to think, okay, I'm doing my own thing and I'm not curious. But they, they are curious because that's a natural human response to various things. I mean, there are so many TV shows and movies are based on piquing our curiosity, right? Every movie trailer ever is designed to get you curious enough about what happens in a movie to go and see it. Uh, now, they may give away the whole movie in the trailer, right, which is frustrating. <laughs> or time-saving. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, if you're not going to see it, then it's great, right? You just watch the trailer and you're done. You're like, thank God, I saw the trailer. I don't have to see that movie. It's my time and money, right? But yeah, I think that that people can exercise that that curiosity. And I think that it's not it's not so much a question of, oh, man, I need to ask like more questions. I think that our mind already asks the questions. We just decide not to try and answer them. Mm. So I need to disabuse any listener that thinks that you uh, vacation most of the year and then suddenly reappear at the end of each year to come out with another <laughs> trends book. Explain your haystack method. In other words, all that activity that goes on that ultimately yields these trends in the book at the end of the year. The haystack method is kind of a, a inverse of a cliche that we've all heard, which is finding a needle in a haystack, 
And the reason I call it the haystack method is because I believe that if any one of us spends enough time gathering up information and ideas and stories, we can then have enough input to take the needle, which could be the trend or the big idea, and stick it in the middle of that haystack and say, that's what this all means. And so a lot of what I advocate for people and what I try and teach people how to do is to collect ideas the same way that most of us collect frequent flyer miles. Because when you're collecting frequent flyer miles, you're collecting them for later use. You're not saying, okay, I flew to LA, now I'm going to try and use my 1,000 miles to do something, because you can't. Mm-hmm. You need more, right? Right. And I think ideas are the same way. Like, we got to load this stuff up. We got to, I mean, if I said to you, okay, I'm going to take you to the woods and, and leave you there, and you're going to have to survive on your own, uh, you'd have a much better chance of surviving if you'd packed your backpack with some duct tape and some, you know, Swiss Army knife and, and a bunch of other things that you could actually use. It's going to be much harder if you don't have any of that stuff. And so I think we need to, in, in a sense, use more ideas and collect more ideas to, to stack our own backpacks, right? So that we get a chance to come up with better ideas instead of just sitting in a room saying, oh, we're going to innovate by copy and pasting our last PowerPoint and changing a couple slides. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's sort of a, a marinating throughout the year, but also collecting. And then what do you do as the year progresses, and I guess what I'm wondering is, how do you go about determining which trends are increasing their velocity? So, usually the, the process of finding those trends is just a, an effort of taking a large amount of content and finding the connections and narrowing it down. So, when I go through this process of what I call the haystack method. And there's actually some pretty good video, like some time-lapse videos of what it looks like online. And I'm sure you'll put those in the show notes as well. But those videos kind of show that you're taking these multiple things and you're finding commonalities between them and stacking them together. And as a result of doing that, you're elevating your thinking to bigger ideas, to more categorical ideas that say, this is how the world's changing. This is how our behavior is changing. And that's kind of the the secret there, that if you capture this stuff over enough of a span of time. And in my case, it just happens to be a year because I'm producing this report every year, but it doesn't have to be. I mean, you could do this over a couple of weeks. You could do it over a couple of days. It's, it's up to you. But when you collect this stuff and then you start to take time to elevate your thinking, it helps you to spot bigger ideas that you may not have spotted otherwise. Right. So one thing you touched on was uh, focusing on human needs to understand a trend. And in the book, you have tips, lots of tips for aggregating ideas. And the first one was to start with human needs. Can you explain why you include that? A lot of the trends that I write about are based on some sort of human value. So for example, uh, the need to be understood, the desire to be consistent with what we've said we believe in, right? All of these are are basic human elements, the desire to not be alone, right? To not be lonely, Mm -hmm. the desire for convenience and and the uh, idea that you can actually spend more time uh, doing the things that you love instead of things that you hate. I mean, these are kind of basic underlying principles of people in general. And I think the more you get to that, the less you have to sit there wrestling with some of the questions that I often get asked when I put this book out, which is, you know, you wrote a book about trends. Can you just tell me the ones that apply for financial services? Or, you know, my audience is moms of uh, young children. Which of these trends apply for them? And, you know, honestly, my answer, and I do tailor this a lot, right? I say, okay, these are ones that you may want to pay attention to. But honestly, 
every one of them applies for every situation. That's kind of the point, right? <laughs> right. Um, uh, but it's not a good answer to that question because then it's like the waiter that tells you everything on the menu is good. I mean, who wants that guy to be their waiter? Nobody. Mm-hmm. Well, if I owned the restaurant, I would want <laughs> Man, not necessarily, right? Because that person, you know, he doesn't have a lot of credibility. Like, you'd much rather listen to the waiter who says, you know, if you want like this you know, type of food, if you're really hungry, like pick this, if you're not that hungry and you're trying to not be fat, then maybe pick this, right? Like whatever, right, <laughs> whatever right, perspective right. they can give you, like that's what you want, right? We're going to take a break here so I can tell you more about how Blinkist might be the answer to one of your biggest worries. As I mentioned earlier, the number one worry I hear from listeners is that they feel they aren't reading enough books to keep up and be more successful, but there's only so much time and you need to manage it carefully. And unless you're, say, the host of the Marketing Book Podcast, you may not be set up to read a book every week. That's where Blinkist can really be a time saver and a career booster. Blinkist is a smartphone app that takes the key insights from over 3,000 best-selling nonfiction books and distills them into a format that you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes or less. Instead of having to wade through hundreds of pages of a book, spending hours reading each book like I do every week, you can go through two books in 30 minutes. And the books that are on Blinkist are from top-notch authors, many of whom have been guests on the Marketing Book Podcast, including Seth Godin, Guy Kawasaki, Robert Cialdini, Philip Kotler, David Merriman Scott, Ann Hanley, Bob Berg, John Jantz, Jonah Berger, Jill Conrath, Jeb Blunt, and many, many more. Over 40 authors who have been on the show. Blinkist has been selected as one of the best apps by Forbes, the New York Times, and BuzzFeed, amongst others, and it's used by over 10 million people. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer for Marketing Book Podcast listeners. Go to Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast right now, today, to start your free trial or get 20% off your yearly plan when you join. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast to start your free trial or get 20% off your yearly plan. And there's no risk because there's a free seven-day trial. Go to Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast. And that means you're going to be letting them know that you support the Marketing Book Podcast and that you want that discount. You'll get the free version or 20% off your annual plan. I also have a link to it at MarketingBookPodcast.com. It's a very smart investment in your success. And now... Back to the show. So for the person who's sitting there with their arms crossed thinking, you know, I don't know what this marketing guy's talking about. I, I don't know. You know, the one that, though the same one that thinks the internet's a fad and I know who you are. I hear you're listening right now. <laughs> no. Talk about how non-obvious thinking can lead to fame and fortune or, or fun and profit. A lot of times what it can lead to is coming up with that idea or that direction that no one else is is thinking about. Mm-hmm. And there's a huge value in that uh, for you in your career, right? And, and especially if you're working in a marketing sort of role where idea generation is a part of what you're expected to do. Coming up with better ideas and more interesting ideas and more unique ideas, I mean, there's a huge reward for that just personally. I think the other thing, though, is partly prevention, right? I don't tend to like to look at the negative side, but if you are engaging in more non-obvious thinking and looking at all of these different movements in the world and how people act and what they think and what they believe in, you can anticipate those threats that otherwise you wouldn't, uh, that can really start to derail your business, that can really start to derail what you're doing. And 
and and it seems like oh that came out of nowhere like we didn't know that everybody would all of a sudden be paying attention to this thing and that animal testing our products would be such a big deal but if you were paying attention to the trends you'd be like you know what maybe we shouldn't do that because there's a growing number of people who actually care about that yeah and that's why as i read through the trends each year I am aware of the things you're talking about, but didn't appreciate how they are picking up in velocity. So I think another benefit, it just came to mind for me, was for for salespeople or for a sales team, where if you can start to identify trends or insights, that is a great way to get the attention of a prospective customer. Where instead of calling up and saying, hey, do you need to buy? I haven't heard from you. Hi, we do this like everyone else. (laughs) Instead, following the guidelines of uh, Anthony Annarino, for instance, in his sales book, Eat Their Lunch, you come in from the other angle and say, look, these are four things that companies like yours uh, should be aware of in the next 18 months based on our experience with companies just like yours. Can I have 20 minutes to give you an executive briefing? Sure, yeah. I mean, that strategy is is, uh, really about being of value, right? Of providing mm-hmm. value instead of just trying to sell something. And it's a it's a well-known sales technique, right? I mean, it's not like we're introducing this and, and all of a sudden we're like, oh, whoa, I never heard of solution selling, right? Mm-hmm. I never heard of like being a value for my customer instead of just trying to sell them the next thing. Right. Um, but I think that it is tough to do proactively and it's tough to do unexpectedly, right? So one of the things I talk about as a real value, and I used to say this a lot in uh, in my old keynote, well, not old, but my other keynote on, on my previous book, right, on Lycanomics. I used to say this a lot. I say people trust those individuals, and particularly in sales, they trust the people who are proactively honest, who told them something they didn't have to tell them, who said, look, the truth is this is good and this is bad. Uh, and they volunteer that. My friend um, Todd Capone, who wrote a great book called The Transparency Sales. Yeah, he had a good publisher too. Yeah, he did. Uh, you know, <laughs> nice plug for uh, for him because you know he chose his publisher well. <laughs> but uh, I, it was published by Idea Press, which is owned by Rohit and his wife. That's right, exactly. And it only took me four years to figure out. Hey, the people behind Idea Press, the ones that keep sending me all these really great authors. <laughs> I didn't know that was Rohit. <laughs> yeah, it was. You know, I mean, it's. Uh, it's partially because uh, we just uh, – I'm lucky like you. I know all of these great, great authors and they, they come to us and they say, look, we have our new project and, and it looks awesome. And it's really easy to say yes to to most of them. Yeah. Well, Todd's book was so good, all about uh, just mm-hmm. being disarmingly honest. And I, one, one of the many things that sticks with me from that book is he talks about how the, there's research studies that show that people trust – let's say it's a, a zero out of five star rating. They'll trust 4.3 to 4.5 more than they will a 5.0. Correct. Yeah, because it's real. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. So let's go to what was probably the trend that got me the most excited. And uh, you've touched on it in the past, and there's been some others um, like Philip Kotler who've, who've talked about this in recent years. He's the father of modern marketing professor at... Uh, Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Business, and it's human mode. And the megatrend is, and I'll read it, tired of technology that isolates us from one another, people seek out and place greater value on physical, authentic, and unperfect experiences designed with empathy and delivered by humans. So explain what's going on here, and if you would, talk about the power of 
what you call authenticity in a fake world and the power of vulnerability and, and unperfection. Look, the funny thing is, uh, and this is this is really interesting if you think about it, uh, even with all of the fakeness and all of the things that are out there, we still trust people more than we trust machines uh, and automation. And one of the most interesting examples of that was a financial services company called Betterment that really pioneered this this thing called robo-advisory services. And, and logically, it made a lot of sense, right? What they said was, look, we're removing the human financial advisor because that person's biased. And why not just look at the numbers and have a robo-advisory service that looks at all the numbers and tells you how to invest based on the numbers, which is logical. And they came back and said, look, we have a premium service that you can pay extra for. And our premium service includes a real human advisor that you can talk to. So even the pioneer of robo-advisory services is saying people are better, like people are the premium version. And that's kind of the intent behind this trend that we said, uh, and a lot of the research pointed to this idea that if there was a human mode, a version of doing something that included a human, that would be a premium luxury experience. And that would be something, therefore, worth paying extra for, worth going to someone and switching over because of, and of huge amount of value. Uh, because we value people. Well, what are some of the ways that people and companies can communicate in more human ways? Well, I think one one of the ways is is using much more human language. So, you know, for example, I mean, we've all been on flights uh, and we've all been on that plane where that pilot comes on over the intercom service and it's a little bit turbulent. And, and uh, the pilot says to all of the flight attendants, can you please take your jump seats? <laughs> what is a jump seat? Why is it jumping? Like, <laughs> that's terrifying, right? If you haven't flown before and they're taking their jump seats, like, what does that mean? Well, it means they're going to get out before I do. Yeah, like, why don't I have a jump seat? Uh, you know, where's my parachute, right? <laughs> and like, all this unintentional stuff that we don't think about. I mean, that's like, that's just one example, right? But like, there's all these unintentional words that are out there that that cause us to lose our customers' mind space because we're just not paying attention to them and communicating in the way that they understand. And there's a more human way to communicate. It involves real human language. One of my favorite writing tricks, I don't know if it's a trick, but tip maybe, um, that I tell to all, all kinds of people is when you write something down, print it out, read it out loud. If it's not something you would say, then change it. If it's not human language, right? Change it. And this is coming from a guy who spent a lot of time learning how to be like a script writer and a playwright. And and the thing about doing that type of writing is everything you write down is being spoken by someone. And so it's a certain style of writing. Uh, mm-hmm. But people trust that style of writing because it sounds like people. Yes, it's true. And I hear the term used, a table read. So like if you're going to do a video or, or anything, yeah. just read it out loud. And every single time I do that, I realize I would never... <laughs> said that. And I had to laugh out loud, as I did at several points in the book, where you said, I once saw a business leader promise he was telling the truth by saying there was no intent to obfuscate. And you go on to say, it is hard to trust a leader who uses a word like that. In the future, organizations and leaders that engender the most trust will be those that systematically eliminate business jargon and communicate in more human ways. So, you talk about how flawed things are actually more appealing 
Is that the 4.3 out of 5? Or why, is, why are flawed things more appealing? It sort of is. I mean, it's, it's the, uh, the element that makes it a little more trustworthy or interesting. Right? I mean, the, the Tower of Pisa would not be all that interesting if it wasn't leaning. And, and that is kind of the, the intent behind this, this um, what used to be a trend, actually, from a past trend report and is now part of this human mode uh, megatrend. Um, and that's kind of one of the in- other interesting things, which is each one of these megatrends is made up of many of the past trends. And so it's kind of this elevated idea. But I think that it does, it, the authenticity thing does come from something that is unafraid to be a little bit flawed. Yeah. It reminds me of Velocity Partners, the B2B marketing firm in the UK. Doug Kessler is one of the principals there. And on their website, I love the way he writes. And I've been after him for years to write a book so I could interview him. But on their website, they have a form where you can sign up for their newsletter. But instead of saying sign up for our newsletter, it says something like, sign up here so we can send you crap. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> That's, you know, I love the honesty of that. Yeah. And it was just sort of like, yeah, they he's sort of tapping into what everyone's perception is of, oh, great, do I have to provide an email address so they can start irritating and annoying me and all that sort of thing? So, I want to move on to just a couple others. We don't have time to get into too many of them, but the other one that just is so relevant to businesses and marketers and salespeople is what you call attention wealth. And the reason it resonated with me is that I don't think a lot of people realize that we've gone from space to attention. In other words, you could get attention in the past by buying more space because we had more of a captive audience. You're competing with cat videos to get your, your customers' attention. And there were a few things that could just be carved in stone. Like you said, our attention is becoming more selective and less easy to attract. And another one was in an information economy, attention is the currency. And the reason I'm harping on this is it just seems like there are so many companies that are very focused on themselves and their products, and they think that everyone else should be as interested in them as they are, and they're not. But they don't understand how much harder it is to get uh, attention. So let me just read that one. In the information economy, our attention is our most valuable resource, leading us to be more skeptical of those who manipulate us to get it, and instead seek out and trust those who communicate in more authentic ways. So, what is this age of of spectacle that you talk about? In some ways, it's a natural reaction to what we see out there, which is a lot of unbelievable, overly sensitized, overly sensational, outrageous things. And you even talk about spectacle backlash. Yeah. And that's really what's, what's kind of happening here, which is so many uh, different folks in, in media or who are producing anything say, well, we got to create something so outrageous, so rage inducing that that's the only thing people will pay attention to. And we fall for it. Uh, And every time we, we click on one of those or pay attention to one of those headlines, we continually reinforce that machine. And it was funny because uh, one of my friends actually posted on Facebook about how when you're watching any of these politician debates, it seems like all these politicians are screaming. Why are they always screaming? Uh, she asked. And my, my response honestly was uh, because they get rewarded for it. 
they mm-hmm. get coverage for it. And and until that changes, like why would they stop screaming? And that's a that's a shame, right? Because we don't treat our kids that way. Like we don't reward our kids for screaming the loudest by giving them whatever they want when they scream. We know that's bad. But when it comes to people in the media and the media, like it's a dysfunctional relationship because they are covering the ones who scream the loudest. And and we gotta find a way to stop paying attention to that. And I think indistractable and that lesson that that you shared there, I think it applies even more so to this idea of, look, we need to start ignoring this stuff. We need to get better at not sharing it, not posting it. I mean, I would love if there was a way that I could have access to a Facebook that removed every time anyone posted any article that they had not written. Like that's the Facebook I want Mm. where no one shares any stories at all. Like it's not about story sharing. If you want to tell me about your kids or your dog, or that's what I want. That's it. Because if we're friends, then I should care about that. And if I am annoyed by that, then we shouldn't be friends. Uh, <laughs> and so my my metric for whether someone's a Facebook friend is would I recognize them on the street and stop and say hi. And if I wouldn't, then they're not a Facebook friend of mine, personally. That's my metric, right? And so that's what I want from that platform. But instead, I get every article that this person's read that they think is outrageous and they share it. And now everyone's talking about it and it gets reinforced and it's just causing the problem. And we don't take much responsibility ourselves for our own role in causing that. Right. And you refer to it as outrage porn. Yeah, it sort of is, right? I mean, it's manipulated outrage is kind of the biggest way that I described it in one of the trends from one of the past trend reports. And it's it really does feel like that because, yeah, it's outrage, but someone is trying to uh, manipulate you as a result of that. And that is something we don't typically think about. Well, and we don't like it. And uh, I interviewed Scott Adams not too long ago about his latest book about the way people think. And he explained the same thing you did, where the news media has gone from basically providing information, and now it's um, brain manipulation. It's it's keeping people outraged so that they'll continue to watch the commercials. And you, you can't blame them. That's, that's what's working for those uh, outfits. But it, of course, it's manifested itself in me in a very weird way. When I'm at the gym and I'm working out, there's a bank of television sets. And usually there's not a lot of people there. And when I, they always put on all these news channels. <laughs> I, yeah. go get the, I go get the remote control and I change it to like a weather channel or a home and garden television or <laughs> a sports channel yeah. just yeah. because I'm so, I guess, indignant Knowing that those all those uh, news channels are just trying to light my fuse, and uh, I don't want to give them that control. Yeah, I, I see the same thing in like Chinese restaurants, right, or airports. Like, why does anyone want to see any of that? Like, if you're in an airport, like, show me the travel channel. You know, like, show me all yeah. the awesome places that I could go. Why do I need to sit there and watch CNN or like any of these? <laughs> Um, breaking alert, you know, uh, news channels where everything's breaking news. Yeah, sort of like clickbait. And I was interviewing Brant Penvidic a few weeks ago, and he talked about how, consistent with what your book talks about, people aren't even falling for clickbait like they did two years ago. It's pretty hard to fool the human brain, and it's a, a, a very quickly, uh, it, it learns more quickly than a lot of people uh, realize. But you're a professor of storytelling, and marketing. Explain why storytelling works. Well, explain what storytelling is for people that don't really, uh, they've heard the term, but they don't really understand what it is and why that works so extremely well for getting people's attention. Storytelling is, is something, first of all, that we are all able and hardwired to do. Uh, And a lot of times when I go in and I do, let's say a workshop about 
teaching storytelling. Uh, it is interesting how many people feel like, oh, I don't know how to tell stories. And I say to them, look, you tell stories all the time. You tell stories to your kids. You go to a party and you tell stories. You talk about stories in your life. We are storytellers naturally because that's just how we communicate with one another. But for some reason, uh, when we get into the business environment, we lose that that importance of storytelling and instead try and tell things in a PowerPoint style fashion. And, and uh, that is what I try and help people unlearn because I think that to answer the other part of your question, why storytelling works is A, because – we're naturally interested in stories. We want to hear stories. We don't want to hear pitches. Okay, that doesn't necessarily mean fiction or making something up. Isn't it more about presenting things in a format that your brain wants? Correct, yeah. it's uh, It doesn't necessarily mean making something up. It means taking people behind the scenes and telling them what happened. And, and what you want them to start thinking is, what happened next? You know, yes. what, you know what else was there, right? Mm-hmm. That Then you're there actually paying attention. And there are people who do uh, fascinating coaching around all of the aspects of storytelling, even to the point of introducing yourself through a story, right? So that what they'll say is you don't just say you're, uh, and I'm going to do the worst thing possible, which is talk about um, a method of introducing oneself without remembering where I read that that's a good method to do it. So I, w- I can't give credit because I don't remember where I read it. Okay, so you have full immunity. Yeah, so I mean, I wish I could. But you know, basically what they say is introduce yourself by uh, sharing something that people recognize as like an issue or a topic. So I might say, you know how everyone seems to read the same thing and think the same thing and never really branches out of their, their point of view. And people say, yeah. And then I'll say, well, what if I had a way of like getting people to think about things that they couldn't, uh, you know, what if I had a way of getting people to think different? Or I'll say, well, I have a company that helps people not do that anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's kind of a method that you that you use to say to relate what you do to something people already are interested in instead of saying, well, I have a company that does this and I work with these companies and our typical customer is a revenue between one million and ten million dollars a year. And that's like meaningless for people. <laughs> right. Right. And even as I was hearing that, I was seeing myself in that story. Yeah. And, and, and that's what you want. Right. I mean, the stories are relatable to people and that's what uh if you think about it like every hollywood and studying the way hollywood and and movies in general do this is a great point uh great thing to do for marketers and the most underappreciated i might have mentioned this to you before but the most underappreciated book that i think every marketer should read is not a marketing book at all it's called save the cat by a guy named blake snyder who was a screenwriter and it's the best uh book that no marketer has read that we all should it's really, really amazing. And what he does in there, one of the things he does in there, uh, which may not seem believable at first, but when you read it, you'll realize that he's actually probably right, is he says every movie ever made uses one of 12 different archetypes of story. Every movie, mm-hmm. without exception. And that seems like you know a pretty bold, like you can't quantify. And like, what about the crazy movies, right? What about every other movie? And and as you go through this book and you read about these 12 different types of stories, like the buddy comedy, right, is one type of story, for example, like you realize, yeah, you know, every movie does fit one of these 12. I don't remember you mentioning that. Um, and that looks very interesting. I'm going to look that one up and we'll include a link to that in the uh, this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. One other thing from that 
section, though, on attention wealth, you talk about how we are increasingly entrusting our attention to individual curators to help spotlight where we should spend our attention. Explain more about that and how businesses can exploit that. There are a lot of personalities who have gone out and and said, look, we're going to go through everything that's out there and we're going to help you figure out what to pay attention to. I mean, the skim is a hugely popular email newsletter, mainly for, for targeted at women that does this. Uh, Maria Popova's Brain Pickings is a, is a really well-known email newsletter that does this. I try and do it every week with my newsletter as well. I go through tons and tons of stories to find the most interesting marketing and business stories every week to share. Uh, and I think that, that those, each one of those examples are, are, are ways that we as people are trying to figure out what to pay attention to by giving license to someone whose opinion we trust to say, look, they did the work to go through hundreds of stories, so I don't have to. Mm-hmm. And there's a guy named Rohit that does that uh, nearly every <laughs> year with trends. Yeah. That I, <laughs> and for that, I thank you. So let me just ask one other about one of the other uh, 10 megatrends, and that's instant knowledge. I found that fascinating. It is... Instant knowledge. As we become accustomed to consuming bite-sized knowledge on demand, we benefit from learning everything more quickly, but risk forgetting the value of mastery and wisdom. So, Robert, what is the difference between uh, knowledge and, and wisdom, and what are the implications there for marketers? Well, I think there's there's a lot of knowledge out there, which to me essentially means the, the stuff that you can kind of know, but not necessarily how to apply it or what it really means. Meaning that's something you look up on your phone? Yeah, it's something that's easy access, right? I mean, you can look it up on Wikipedia, you can watch a quick video to learn how to fix a uh, you know leaky toilet. Um, I mean, all this stuff doesn't make you a master plumber. It just helps you fix that one thing. And there's nothing wrong with that type of knowledge, right? I'm not inherently criticizing it and saying, look, knowledge is bad and wisdom is good and forget about knowledge, right? I mean, knowledge is super useful when you have it in the right moment when you need it. But the challenge is that if we only have knowledge, right, if we only build on the shoulders of things that other people have done and never learn how to truly do something or think for ourselves or or really – recreate some of the basic things that we've known, then then we're in real trouble as as humans, right? And we're in real trouble individually too. Because you never really get further uh, than just the surface. So in that chapter you recommend becoming a deep expert. Explain what that is and how listeners could go about doing it. Well to me becoming a deep expert means that you really spend a lot of time and effort learning something for yourself. So I'll give you one example, right? I mean, as a, we talked about IdeaPress before, and, and I'm an author who decided on a, uh, in a crazy moment to start a publishing company uh, like almost five years ago. But I didn't know anything about publishing. I just knew about being an author. And so for me, it became this slow process of educating myself on what actually matters to all of the different people in the industry. What do these paperweights mean? Like, you know, between like a 60 pound and a 50 pound paper. I mean, all of this really logistical stuff, but then also the big picture stuff. Like how does a book buyer buy a book? What do they care about? What do they not care about? Uh, why would they never respond to a certain type of message coming at a certain time from a certain person? Uh, these are all the sorts of things, and this is specific to one industry and one small little vertical, right? 
but the idea is that that when you dedicate yourself to learning from everybody who's out there and i have have talked to so many people in that industry who have 30 plus years of experience and i just sit down with them and i say look what else do i need to know like what else how does this work you know why is this particular way of printing something like if you use a silver paper and like i mean all these logistical details right but the point is like i'm investing my time in learning this because i'm interested in it and i believe that it has importance for what i do uh and that is a choice that that i think we all can make um and a lot of times when someone's in that marketing role and they're working in that industry the mindset, especially for uh, the sort of mid-range to younger marketing person, oftentimes is, well, I'm not going to be in the paint industry for more than a year or two, so who cares? Like, I'll just, I'll do what I do. Do I really need to become an expert in paint? The answer to them is no. And it's a missed opportunity there. Mm -hmm. And another missed opportunity for marketers is not becoming the expert on their customers and understanding their customers. And this Deep wisdom for me ties back to what we were talking about at the top of the interview of being observant. So yep. if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I would hope that it's to be more open-minded, to read things that you wouldn't ordinarily read, uh, to venture outside of your interest area, and to just be the sort of person that is always looking at trying to learn something different. Solid gold advice. What is one thing the listener can do today to put in action any of the ideas from your book? I feel like I might have given this answer in the past, but I'm going to go with it again because I, I really strongly believe it. I love to buy magazines that are not targeted to me. That's one of my favorite ways of consuming media because yes. I'll get a chance to see a unique, different idea from someone who is totally different than I am. And I highly, highly recommend that to, to anyone to do because, you know, not only do you get to see something that's tailored to someone else, but the upside is because it's a print magazine, there's no algorithms trying to decide what stories you might be interested in that are tailoring it to you. The magazine you get is the same one that someone else just picked up. Yes. And, I was in a big grocery store recently and I noticed a whole aisle of magazines and there aren't many magazines at the house anymore <laughs> or here in the office, but uh, it just occurred to me that next time I go back there, I could just start flipping through some of these things and it would be things that I wouldn't necessarily be looking at. That's a great idea. So, thank you for that. Now, I often ask, uh, are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend? And Rohit Bhargava, you have answered that in ways that I don't think anyone else can or ever will. Two things. One is, on page 233 of your book, there is a list of 72 books, and I know that because I counted them, recommended for further reading related to all the megatrends in the book. So if as you stumble upon one of these trends, and as you could tell, there were two that really caught my attention and interest, I was going back to the back to see, well, how, how could I read more about this? There are like five books for each each section, something like that. So we're not going to uh, be able to include a link to that, but people can buy the book and get it. But also, there are the non-obvious book awards. Tell us about those. I will include a link to that. Yeah, so for the, four, for the last four years, um, I've just, like you, I get sent a lot of books to look at. And 
one of the things I decided with my team is, you know, we should take all these books and we should start running our own awards program uh, because I was entering our books and Idea Press books into a lot of awards. And so I thought, you know, let's do our own and, and do it in a little bit of a different way than most. So most book awards programs, uh, you have to submit a book to a category. So you're like, this is a marketing book. This is a sales book. This is an economics book. We said, look, we're just looking at business books, but you just submit the book. You don't have to pick a category because, you know, what if it's a sales management book? Is it sales? Is it management? Who knows, right? Mm-hmm. So we're not going to do these artificial categories. Instead, we're just going to get all of these books and we're going to evaluate them and we're going to pick the ones that we think are the most non-obvious and the most interesting. And it's eventually we'll come up with a long list, which will have, you know, 50-ish books. We'll have a short list, which will have 15, and then we'll have five winners. And our five winners will be the most useful book of the year, the most original book of the year, the most entertaining book of the year. I mean, like various categories like that. Mm-hmm. That's great. And this brings to mind that you are clearly an entrepreneur and you, I don't know if you know this or if it's been revealed to you, but you may actually have an authority problem. And here's why I say that, Roy. You didn't want to deal with publishers. You started your own publishing company. You're observing other awards. You say, I want to start my own awards. It reminds me of a friend of mine who was a banker, still is a banker, and he didn't like how the bank kept moving him around from city to city. So you know what he did? He started his own bank. <laughs> he started his own bank. Yep. <laughs> and I just thought, who starts a bank these days? And it's really successful, but it was because he didn't like being told where to go. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I can, uh, I can identify with that, I think. So at marketingbookpodcast.com, like I've mentioned, we're going to include links to your sites, your social media, your LinkedIn profile, and all the books we talked about and the awards so that uh, people can find them quickly. And I hope they'll reach out to you and thank you for being on the show once again. And for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on the show notes link. One last quote, non-obvious thinking can make you the most creative person in any room, no matter what your business card says, and help solve your biggest problems. Most importantly, non-obvious thinking can help you anticipate, predict, and win the future. The name of the book is Non-Obvious Megatrends, How to See What Others Miss and Predict the Future. The author is Rohit Bhargava. Rohit, thank you very much for returning for the fifth time to the Marketing Book Podcast. Hey, you're welcome. Thank you for uh, being so awesome and doing everything that you do. And uh, it was a great conversation as I, as I fully anticipated. And that closes the book on episode 260 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Special thanks to our sponsor Blinkist to support the Marketing Book Podcast and start your free Blinkist trial or get 20% off your yearly plan. Visit Blinkist.com slash marketing book podcast. I also have a link to the special offer at marketingbookpodcast.com. And please join us next time as we welcome back David Meerman Scott to the Marketing Book Podcast for the fourth time to talk about the new book he has co-authored with his daughter, Rako Scott, Fanocracy, turning fans into customers and customers into fans. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. This episode was produced by Amanda Harrison.